Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back. Thank you for listening in. Now, to introduce my guest of this episode, his name is Victor Hagany. Victor began his career at Salomon Brothers in 1984, starting out in a research role before joining their prop trading desk. In 1992, Victor left Salomon to become one of the founding partners of Long-Term Capital Management. LTCM was an incredibly successful hedge fund. Some years, while using a lot of leverage, the fund would return over 40%. Until 1998, when LTCM failed in a spectacular fashion, causing the Federal Reserve to step in and organise a bailout in order to prevent the possibility of a collapse in the global financial system. Victor took a 10-year sabbatical after the dust settled, and in 2010, he founded Elm Partners, which is an active index investing fund. Victor mentioned to me that he didn't want to spend too much time discussing LTCM, but if you're interested to find out more, there is plenty of info online and I've linked to a couple resources in the show notes, which can be found at chatwithtraders.com slash 129. But we did spend quite a bit of time on something I thought was very interesting, which is optimal bet sizing and how bet sizing alone can drastically alter outcomes over a large number of bets or trades, if you will. Much of this discussion is in reference to an experiment Victor carried out with some involvement from Edward Thorpe on the patterns of how 61 participants would bet on a biased coin with real money. You can find a link to the paper, which was produced afterwards also in the show notes. Last thing, the sound quality isn't superb, so I do apologize, but I'm sure, hopefully, your ears will quickly adapt. With that being said, here is my guest for episode 129, Victor Hagany. I read somewhere, I'm not sure how true it is, but your father was also a trader. Yeah, my father uh, was a trader. He wasn't a trader in financial in the financial markets, but he was a trader in uh, in the import export business. More that than an entrepreneur, but he was a, he was also an entrepreneur and a businessman. 
Ah, okay. Okay. That makes sense. So, did he have any influence on you getting into trading? I mean, what got you into trading? Well, no, he did not have any influence on me getting into trading. What got me into trading was John Merriweather and his team um, asking me to join uh, their trading group on the floor. I, I had joined research at Solomon Brothers in fixed income research. And after a few years of doing research, they invited me to become a trader. I didn't, I had no idea uh, about it or <laughs> didn't know if I would be, I mean, it, it wasn't something that I was planning on doing. Uh, my father, though, did influence me to join Solomon Brothers. I had um, an offer from JP Morgan and Solomon Brothers, and I said, Dad, which one do you think I should take? I said, the JP Morgan one is paying about 40% more. And he said, which one is, 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 uh, you know, which one is just a, a flatter, sort of crazier place where if you do well, you can go further? Which one is more bureaucratic? And I said, well, JP Morgan is definitely more bureaucratic. And he said, well, go for the Solomon one then. You know, go, go in there and have some fun. And he was right. Now, we won't spend too much time on this because there's some things that I definitely want to get into conversation with you about. But just give us a quick rundown on what you were doing at Solomon Brothers. And then for anyone who you know is unfamiliar with you, bring us up to speed on the long-term capital management situation. And then we'll get into some other topics, which I think are quite interesting. So, yeah, just give us a short rundown on your background in this industry. Okay, sure. Yeah, so by way of background, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I started at Solomon and fixed income research, and then after a few years was invited to join the ARB desk, uh, the government, uh, government ARB desk or proprietary trading desk run by John Merriweather that was kind of in the center or uh, a prominent um, player in the book Liars Poker. Um, and uh, I, I was the youngest uh, trader on the desk and learned from uh, all these other great people and became very very close to um, to everybody, and it became my family. And so, uh, when a few of them, in particular John, left Solomon Brothers in 1992 to uh, start LTCM, uh, I had just gotten married. Decided that I would like to stay with my uh, with my colleagues and mentors and friends. So I left uh, I left Solomon Brothers um, in uh, late '92, and I uh, and and then after a while I gave it some more thought and joined with John um, and my other partners as one of the uh, founding uh, partners at, at LTCM. And then I moved to London with my wife because I had, I had been in London before for school and university. And I set up our London office and eventually had a, a, an excellent partner in the office, Hans Hofschmidt, and we ran all of the trading that we were doing in uh, in sort of the European sphere. And uh, and then when Solomon, sorry, when LTCM failed in uh, 1998, I was one of uh, probably a minority of partners that stayed to work for the 13 bank consortium that took over our portfolio and we liquidated it for them over the course of a little more than a year. And then I stayed a little bit longer to um, to help my friends uh, get get a successor hedge fund started called JWM Partners. And um, I forget the exact year, but I took a sabbatical and then which turned into a 10 year sabbatical around 2001, 2002, um, at, which then eventually led to me founding Elm Partners, which I've been uh, running for the last five years, which is kind of a 
um, you know, a big reverse of direction from very active investing at, at LTCM to what we call active index investing, which is a much more passive, long-only approach where we charge just, uh, we will recharge clients 12 basis points to help them to get efficiently invested in ETFs and index funds. I know we don't want to get bogged down in this and we want to keep things moving, but the long-term capital management situation was a very interesting event. For someone listening to this podcast who wants to find out more information about that and wants to kind of read up on that just out of you know curiosity and just interest, where should they go? I know there's a lot of information online and that sort of thing. I'm not sure how much of it is accurate. I mean, is there any credible resources which you'd suggest someone turn to if they're interested in finding out more about what really happened? Absolutely. So, so the problem is that um, the, the problem with the writing about LTCM is that it was, it was such a big news item that authors and researchers felt that they needed to write about it right away. So the most popular book following uh, LTCM is the Roger Lowenstein book called When Genius Failed. You know, it's, it's a good read. It's a good read. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, it can't possibly be 100% accurate, but it gets a lot of the facts of the situation correct. But the problem is that it was written in such close proximity to the event that it, it, it really doesn't have the perspective um, where there's so much more valuable insights to be drawn that you would get in looking back at this, um, you know, after 15 years or so, and particularly after the um, financial crisis of 08. So nobody is really going to write a book about LTCM, uh, you know, that's a fresh look at it, say in 2010, looking back at that, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, from, from so long ago. So unfortunately, that doesn't really exist. So, so the Lowenstein book, there's another book by a, a gentleman um, named, um, oh, I just had his name in my mind, uh, Dun Dun. Dunbar. Yeah, yeah, Nick, maybe Nick Dunbar. That was another book written at the time that came out just before Roger's book. So those are okay, you know, in terms of laying out what happened at the time. Those are decent. And, and Roger Lowenstein's, a, they're both good writers, so they're well-written books. It's sort of the most, uh, I would say, you know, to really get a, a, a much better idea of the whole thing, though, I would suggest buying the Harvard Business Study Harvard Business School case study by Andre Perold, P-E-R-O-L-D. So Harvard Business School did a case study on LTCM, and so they collected a lot of facts, and it's very concise. Um, And uh, that's where I would really go to to try to get more directly at the facts and save yourself a few hundred pages of reading. So the Harvard Business School case study. I think those are really the best um, resources for trying to take a look at what happened. But, you know, as I say, the best thing would be for somebody to write a book now reflecting on it, because I think that I I think that the lessons to be learned from it are, are different than they felt in the aftermath. Okay. Okay. Excellent. And I mean, I'm sure as we get talking, you'll probably draw on some of those lessons as we go. So, um, I appreciate you sharing those few resources. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, we're all, we're all a product of our experiences. So yeah, the LTCM was probably one of the biggest experiences. Certainly was the, certainly by far was the biggest business experience of my life. Now, Victor, you first came onto my radar, you know, obviously I was familiar with the whole uh, LTCM thing, but you first came onto my radar recently when you produced a paper. Now, that paper was based on 
um, an experiment, an experiment about a biased coin flip. I'm not going to try and explain what the paper was about. I'm going to leave that up to you. Um, but I'd really like to talk about this. I, I thought it was quite an interesting experiment. So just to begin things, what was the premise or idea of the experiment? Well, we uh, we wanted to investigate how uh, quantitative, financially trained people would approach wagering on a biased coin with real money. So we set up an experiment uh, where we went out and ultimately tested 61 subjects where we gave them $21. We gave them a computer program that had a biased coin that you could flip by pressing a button. We told them that the coin was biased 60% to land on heads, and it was. And we told them that however much money they had at the end of 30 minutes, we would pay them that money out uh, subject to a cap and the cap they would find out about if they got close to it. So flip away for, uh, for a half an hour. And within a half an hour, uh, you know, some people who flipped quickly were able to flip 300 times. Um, and you could flip any amount of the 20, any amount of money that you had in your bank account at, uh, you could wager on the flip of the coin, uh, down to a one cent increment. So that was it. That was the experiment. Okay, and how much would the participants make if it landed on, I presume it was probably heads that paid out the 60% and then tails was the, the losing side. How much would they win or lose for each, depending on which side it landed? No, so the coin was biased. So the coin would, would land on heads 60% of the time, but the payout would just, you would win or lose whatever you bet. So if you bet, if you started off and you bet $4 and it came, and you, sorry, if, if you bet $4 on heads and it came up heads, you would win $4. If it came up tails, you would lose $4. You could also bet on tails. Um, you might say, why would somebody do that? But people bet a lot on tails. We told them it was 60% heads. And, and it was, but still uh, people sometimes bet on tails. So you could bet on either side that you want. That was one of the things we were curious about. And uh, the payout was a one-to-one payout, but you had a 60% chance of the coin landing on heads. Uh, okay, I get it. So, I mean, that's that seems quite bizarre. Why did people bet on tails? I mean, especially if there was a much greater probability of it landing on heads, why did people pick tails? Well, we conducted some interviews afterwards, and the two biggest reasons that we found were, one was um, that, and, and this is a well-documented uh, bias that people have, is that they kind of feel that things that are random aren't random, that there's predictability in random things, right? So after, so people after a string of heads, like if there were four heads in a row, they would be more likely to bet on tails. They couldn't resist. It was like, wait, there were four heads in a row. It's going to be tails next. And there's a whole, you know, there's there's papers and papers written on every one of these biases in, in the literature. So that's been documented before. The other one, which was really interesting, which I got from my mom. So my mom wasn't in our sample, but I let her, I, I had her do the, the experiment, but we, I didn't count her in there. And I said, Mom, you know, you, you bet on tails sometimes. You know, why'd you do that? And she said to me, you know, I know that I should never bet on tails. I understand that, that never should bet on tails. It's 60% heads. But, you know, it was just so boring and I couldn't help myself. So I think that this boredom is really important. Um, it's a really important 
um, aspect of, of, of what, of what goes on, you know, that just sitting there and, and just betting as fast as you can on heads is, is boring. And, um, and that's a bit of a problem for some of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. So, you know, once you conducted this experiment, what sort of results did you say? Like, how did, how did the group perform? Well, people did, uh, I mean, especially given that these were, you know, m- you know, math students, finance students, MBA students, um, venture capital investors and um, investment managers, you know, that's kind of described all of the backgrounds of the people. About a third of the people went bust. A third of the people went bust, flipping a biased coin in their, that's in their favor. About a third of the people, or a little bit less than that, reached the maximum, the payout, which was $250. So a bunch of these, I mean, in a lot of cases, these kids, you know, it's like going into, uh, you know, one of the London universities and a bunch of these, these guys are around and I'm paying them all out, you know, like $250, uh, you know, for sitting, for flipping a coin for half an hour. But so it was really interesting. So about 20% of the people hit the cap of $250 or 10x, 30% of the people went bust. The other 50% of the people averaged about $80. Everybody altogether averaged about $90. And this is really suboptimal because a very simple kind of rule, such as I will just bet 15% of my stake on every flip and bet heads, would give you upwards of a 95% chance of hitting that $250 cap. So very suboptimal behavior. I mean, the the uh, what was it like? Ha- uh, just under half of the people bet on tails more than five times. I mean, that was kind of crazy that that there was so much tails betting. Um, and we and we said, you know, as I say, more than five times. So I think you know, I, I mean, I might have bet on tails once just to see what would happen. Like if I bet on tails, would it say, you know, you've just won? You know, you've won. You know that you that you stepped out of the box and bet on tails, and now you're a winner or something. You know, I might have bet on on tails once for a dollar. But, you know, but like 40, 50 percent of the people bet on tails more than five times. So um, really interesting. I, I, I love this coin flipping stuff. It's great. Yeah. So you said, I, I think if I heard you correctly, about a third of people went bust. They went bankrupt. They lost all their money. What were the reasons that led participants to go bust? Like, did they just bet everything on one flip? Was it... Well, ultimately, they had to do that, right? I mean, the only way you can go bust, and I mean, there's two ways to go bust, really. Either you, you know, you sort of bet. You either you make a voluntary choice to bet everything, or you get down to having one cent left, and then you can't bet anything less than one cent, and so you have to bet the one cent, and if you lose, you're bust. But basically, everybody just voluntarily sort of bet their whole stake at some point, and um, and and were and they were out. And normally what would happen is they bet their whole stake bef- uh, just after they had lost betting more than they should have been betting. So it was kind of like, you know, you had, you know, $15 in your bank account and then you, for some reason, you bet $7, you know, maybe you were following a doubling down strategy. So you bet $7 on heads and now you had $8 left. And you're like, oh, gosh, you know, I got to get back up there. So you bet. So maybe, you know, you would bet a small amount for a while. Then, you know, you're not really going anywhere. So then you'd say, okay, you know, I've got $9. I'm going to bet $4. Now you've gotten to $5. Then you bet $2.50. You lose that. You're down at $2.50. And then, you know, you're like, how am I going to get out of here? And you just start betting pretty heavily as a fraction of the $2.50. And 
you know, all of a sudden you're at 50 cents and you're like, all right, you know, the only way I'm going to get out of here is to just bet my 50 cents and get five heads in a row or something, you know, which is, <laughs> I don't know. Well, we didn't, we did not, uh, we should have interviewed the uh, people who went bankrupt more, but, um, but they didn't really want to talk about it much. They were kind of out of there pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand. I can understand. As as, I mean, they were, I mean we, we did, we did have a rule. We said, you cannot leave this room until the half an hour is over. So we were afraid that sometimes, you know, you would get this thing where somebody would say, geez, I got $2 in my bank. I just got to, I just want to go out and make a phone call. I want to get out of here and have a coffee. So I'm just going to bet this thing and, and leave. So we said, no, no, you got to, so we made everybody sit in the room. So even if you went bust, you had to just sit there until the half an hour was over. Now you made an interesting comment before you said something like, if participants had have just bet 15% of their bank roll on each bet, they would have had a 95% chance of hitting the money cap or the, the payout, um, the max payout, which was, I think, $250. So, where does that 15% come from? I guess we're now kind of getting into optimal bet sizing. But, yeah, how did you arrive at that 15%? Well, well, first of all, as I was saying, there's kind of a whole range that works pretty well in this particular problem. Like if you were betting anything from like 8 or 9% up to about 20%, you'd have a really, really high chance of hitting that, um, that cap. Kind of the magic number, in a way, the, there's, there's sort of this magic number, which is known as the Kelly number, the Kelly criterion, which maximizes your rate of growth of wealth, um, named after John Kelly and, you know, lots of books and everything written about that. That, that fraction would actually be 20%. But, you know, given that this game has a cap, you know, that probably you would want to bet less than that Kelly number. The, the optimal solution to this game is really complicated. Um, but these approximations or heuristics are fine. I mean, you just have to have the insight that you want to bet some, you know, you want to be betting some fraction of your bank on the bets. And you also, if you know that there's a cap, you want to have some idea, you know, you want to have some prior of what the cap could conceivably be. I mean, you know, I mean, I think any, um, you know, sort of, you know, the common sense would tell these guys that I'm not going to walk in and do this experiment and pay somebody a million dollars if they make a million dollars, right? So, you know, whether it's $250 or $50 or $1,000, you know, these guys should know that, you know, that's kind of going to be the range of this cap, you know, that it just wouldn't be credible that I would go in there and be paying these guys, you know, if they, if they got on a roll, that I would pay them $100,000, right? Yeah, and when I read the paper, I, I think it stated in the paper that if someone had have used optimal bet sizing with um, these sort of odds, the payout um, after flipping a coin for 30 minutes could have been, I think it was well over a million dollars. It might have been way over. How much was it? Yeah, so um, exactly. So if this game had been uncapped, so one thing that people had no appreciation of is just how incredibly valuable this game would be uncapped. So, so if this game were uncapped, then the expected value, and, and this is, this is going to be, in, I think this is kind of an interesting thing to dwell on a little bit more. The expected value of the game would be about $3 million. In other words, if you flip the coin uh, 300 times, and every time you bet 20% on it, that would be like a 4% return on every flip and a 4% return over 300 events, you know, is like, um, over a hundred thousand. And so that's where you get to the $3 million. 
from the 25 starting point. So that's the expected value, which I think, you know, none of the participants really, or virtually none of the participants appreciated. But then it's kind of interesting because you get into this question of, so how much would you pay? Let's say that, let's say that somehow for some reason, somebody offered you this game uncapped as unlikely as that would be. But somebody, for some reason, you know, you got to play this game uncapped just as a thought experiment. What would you pay to play the game? Right. You would say, well, well, it's, it's worth $3 million. Should I pay a million dollars to play the game if it's got an expected value of $3 million? Well, the answer is um, no. I mean, that that the way to figure out how much you should be willing to pay to play the game is that you need to bring in a uh, a function of your own risk aversion. You need to bring in a utility function. And this is so interesting. It goes all the way back to Daniel Bernoulli, and uh, all this work that was done, I don't know, what, 400, four or 500 years ago, the St. Petersburg paradox is about a game, it's about a game of chance similar to this one that has an expected value equal to infinity, but people are only willing to pay like $10 to play it because the expected utility of the game has a, a value equivalent to $10. Now, I know that I'm going really fast here, uh, you know, et cetera, and sort of, you know, there's a bunch of short pieces on our website that, that talk more about this, but probably people also have learned this at, uh, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in, in um, finance or economics classes if, if they've taken those. But it's so interesting because that expect, that difference between the expected value and the expect, the, the dollar value equivalent of the expected utility is so huge. So in this game, the expected value uncapped would be $3 million. But, you know, we could, we, you, you could imagine somebody who's, you know, sort of normally risk averse, um, being willing to only pay 10, 20, $30,000 to play the game, depending on their risk aversion. And so, because and and the way to think about that is where the real value of this game is coming from is when you're getting a lot more you know it's very skewed if you get a lot more heads than the expected number of heads you know it becomes a bonanza so and i've got a little bit more to say on that but let me ask let me stop there so you could give me a little more direction but i've got something that i want to explain on that more as well feel free to do so i mean i was going to ask about how this ties into financial markets so i think that might take us on another tangent if you want to finish off any further comments you have yet, yeah, feel free to do so. Okay. So what I'd like to say is that, you know, one of the really key things that this, that this research makes us think about is, is investment sizing, is trade sizing, and is risk management, all, all the same thing. And what's so interesting here to me is, let's think about the 60-40 coin for a second again, right? So I said, well, the Kelly uh, optimal bet is 20%, right? Well, What's the, what's the strategy that gives you the highest expected value of the game? Right? Because I said Kelly gives you the highest expected growth rate. Um, I said the game is only worth in expected utility terms, you know, ten to $40,000, maybe more depending. But what's the optimal strategy to follow if you were not risk averse at all, you had no risk aversion, and you were just trying to sort of get the highest expected value from the game? The answer is that you bet 100% of your money on every flip, and you do that for 300 flips. Now, you know, I think that that is, that that is, you know, just a moment's reflection tells you that that is a ridiculous strategy. You have, you have almost a hundred percent chance of winding up with no money left over because you're going to lose the chances that you don't 
lose money on 300 that you don't come up tails in 300 flips is pretty close to zero it's like one of those crazy small numbers but that's the highest expected value for the game right because well that that's what it is now what if we said instead of betting this sort of kelly optimal fraction if i said to you well look this is a great game forget about kelly let's just bet 50 percent of our bank on each flip well if you do that the expected value of the game is much, much higher than it is by betting 20% because you're betting more on a favorable flip, okay? But what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that you can see that. So first of all, in terms of expected gain, right, I said to you that if you're betting 20%, your expected gain for each flip is 4%, right? 60% of winning a dollar uh, minus, I'm sorry, 60% of winning 20 cents because you, let's say that you have a dollar of wealth and you're betting 20 cents. Uh, that's the 20%. So it's 60% of 20% minus 40% of the 20%. And that is um, 4%. So you make 4% expected return on each flip. But if you're betting 50% of your wealth on each flip, then the expected gain per flip is actually 10% because you have a 60% chance of making 50 cents and a 40% chance of losing 50 cents, and that adds up to a 10% return. So that means that after 10 flips, your expected gain is to be at a multiple of 2.6 times your starting point, or after 100 flips, you're up, for, you're, you've grown your wealth expectation to 14,000. But, but think about this for a second. Let's say you're taking 10 flips like that, and things turn out exactly as you expect, which would be what, six heads and four tails, right? Well, Let's think about first you go the four, let's think about that as being four heads, four tails, and then two more heads. So what does that look like, right? Well, when you make 50% of your money, that's great. Your dollar, dollar grew into a dollar 50. But then when you lose on the next coin, you've lost 50%. You're down at 75 cents. So do that up and down four times, right? And you're down to having about 30 cents left over. Geez, that's terrible. But then you win twice in a row because we said six heads and four tails. But the result of winning twice in a row after that is you've just grown back up to 0.7. So in the case where you go up six and down four in any order, if you get six heads and four tails and you're betting 50% of your wealth, you're going to wind up losing 30% of your wealth. Isn't that crazy, right? That's the sort of downward drift in the median value. And so if you do that a lot, you're going to be, if you do that a hundred times, you're going to wind up with like zero leftover, 0 0.03 or something like that. And what's more is that if you think about it in sort of any kind of normal utility sense, you'll see that betting 50% is a negative expected utility investment to make. And so, therefore, we shouldn't do it. It's a bad thing. You would be better off. So if somebody came to you and said, here's a 60-40 coin. The only thing is you have to bet 50% of your wealth on it. What would you do? Any normal person should say, hey, uh, I'll pass. Thank you very much. And sort of move on. So, you know, I think this whole bet sizing thing is, is so important. It seems so sort of simple. And it seems like it's secondary to the idea of identifying a good investment. 
Um, we do need to identify good, positive return investments. That's critical. But we also then need to decide how big to be in them. And I think that, you know, one of the great lessons from LTCM is, is, is about trade sizing. You know, if, if we had had, if we had had a third of the positions that we had, you know, the things would have been different. So I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if anyone's getting lost in this, which is quite easy to do, check out the paper. I'm going to link to the paper in the show notes. So it'll be at chatwithtraders.com. Might make some of this a lot clearer. If you are getting lost, if you're following along, that's even better. But um, yeah, I'll link to the paper in the show notes. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the US markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Now, this is all very interesting, but I guess the real question is, what can we learn from this as traders? Like, where can we get a biased coin and financial markets? <laughs> well, the, the clearest place to get, in my opinion, the clearest place to get a biased coin in the markets is, uh, is beta. That's the, to me, that's the clearest place to get it, is that the stock market, um, not only that, that there's both reason to believe that the stock market will give us a return above the risk-free rate, and also... We can verify that on a uh, on an ex ante basis by looking at uh, corporate earnings, corporate dividends, and making some relatively straightforward assumptions about the future uh, future outcomes. So, without looking back at the past at all, I think that we can look at equities and uh, convince ourselves that equities should and do have a positive uh, expected return above the risk-free rate or above inflation. Unfortunately, it's a pretty bad sharp ratio compared to what we really want, right? So, you know, I think that it's it's a bit like a 60-40 coin uh, toss, but with a lot more hair on it than the coin has. So that's one place that we can get, you know, other related sources of beta, uh, similar sources of beta out there, you know, we can also get um, that that sort of positive uh, biased coin from those. So, I mean, you know, not only is our global equities uh, likely to have a risk premium going forward, but also, you know, real estate and other related things. But um, once you move away from that, Aaron, it gets really tough. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, there's there's lots of, but, you know, there's lots of, I mean, there's relative value, you know, there's a lot of relative misvaluation in the world out there. So you can put on, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't really follow it anymore, but you can put on trades, you know, buying uh, in the fixed income world and different places and find these good relative value trades. I mean, the problem is that, you know, I think that the the distributions of those trades are really difficult in the sense that they tend to have these big negative fat tails on the on the downside. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the, the big takeaways from this sort of this experiment is just showing how position sizing can have such a huge effect on your your outcome, you know, after however many flips or however many trades, um, you know, after doing something many times over. I know one of the people who helped you with this experiment was Edward Thorpe. What sort of comments did he have and what was his input on this experiment? Well, I would say that his involvement in it was uh, first uh, inspiration that, that he, uh, uh, that, that, Everything he's done, everything he's uh, uh, communicated to people sort of inspired us in this direction. And then after we had done the experiment and after we had written it up, we sent it to him to get his comments. And he had helpful comments for us. And he had um, even even better than that. He was like very encouraging and he really liked it. And he's and he's talked about it uh, to some of his um, followers as, as well. So that's um, his involvement in it. I listened to a talk you gave, I think it was at uh, the TransferWise office, um, and it must have only been the other week I came across it on YouTube and I noticed it was, it had only been online for about, uh, for a few days. One of the things you said uh, during that talk I found rather interesting, especially given that you have worked with Ed Thorpe, you said, I don't know if you can beat the market, and I think this kind of ties into what we're talking about we've talked about uh, prior to this as well. Would you mind just expanding on, on that comment? Okay. Um, <laughs> Tough question. Yeah, I don't think, I don't, well, no, I'm trying to remember what I said and at the same time uh, asking myself what I believe in this because I'm not sure that that's, that's exactly what I said and, and how, it, uh, how it came out. But um, I believe that certain people can beat the market. I definitely believe that certain people can beat the market. I'm very skeptical that investors can figure out who those people are in a positive, expected manner. So there are, um, you know, there are brilliant, uh, rare people out there, relatively rare people out there who, who can beat the market. Um, as somebody who doesn't think that, I don't think that I can do it, uh, or I don't want to try to do it. I don't think that I can find, I don't think I can identify those guys in a reasonable time uh, to be able to allocate the money and, and earn a, uh, an improved return as compared to a relatively passive form of investing. I think that's what I said to them. And I was talking to them about the, uh, the, the, um, the paucity of, uh, or the lack of power of historical data um, to help us identify these things. I think that historical data, just as the, I mean, I know it's very hackneyed uh, when they, you know, this saying of, uh, or this boilerplate phrase of past returns are not indicative of future performance. But when you do the numbers, when you think about the numbers from a statistical point of view, you'll conclude that, um, that past performance cannot really uh, be indicative of future returns with the amount of data that we have on, on different things. And actually, I've just got a paper that we're going to post in the, in the next couple of days um, that's kind of on this topic. And again, it's using a coin. It's using, a, it's using the lens of coin flipping to explain that. To give you a quick preview of one of the, the opening of the paper says, asks this question. It says, imagine that you have two coins. Uh, that you're t there are two coins presented to you and you're told one of them is a 60-40 coin and the other one is a 50-50 coin. And 
you're asked how many times do you require you're going to you're going to re request a certain number of times to see the coins flipped in parallel and count up heads and tails how many uh, times do you request to see them flipped so that you would have a 95% confidence in choosing the right coin or identifying the biased from the unbiased coin people's intuition all right if they i mean if people sit down and and calculate it they come to the right answer but people's intuition is to give a relatively low number like 20 or 30 flips you know that in 20 or 30 flips you would get there but the answer is 143 and what that kind of means is that it takes 143 years to differentiate a uh, an investment manager that's giving you a zero sharp ratio versus one that's giving you a sharp ratio of 0.2 and slicing the data up into weekly data or monthly data doesn't help at all. So um anyway that's about half the paper I just gave you right there. So but hopefully you'll enjoy the other half of it when <laughs> when you get to it. Yeah. And and when where will that be available when it comes out? It'll be on our uh, on our website and um you know by the way people can sign up to uh to to get our um our thought pieces as as we put them out there you know just go to the website and you can sign up and then we'll send you our blog pieces but that'll be on our blog um and also on the Elm Labs uh, website and and hopefully in the next couple of days we're just trying to we're trying to make it interactive so we want to make it where you go there we ask you the question you put in your answer then we talk about it we ask you another question and then talk about it some more so we think that's kind of fun uh, okay good one very cool are there any parting words of wisdom you'd like to leave with us you know anyone who's listening to this Victor anything you'd like to add to take us out No, I I uh I I've really enjoyed this. I think um that I don't really have very much on the wisdom front. <laughs> so um I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll have me back sometime. I really enjoyed uh um you know chatting with you and sharing sharing thoughts and experiences. I've thoroughly enjoyed this Victor. I appreciate you coming on. So if anyone wants to find out more about you, elmfunds.com and are you on Twitter? No, I I guess I should I'm hoping to do that soon. I haven't figured out Twitter yet. Um sorry. <laughs> I'm a bit I'm a little bit slow. But I am I did do LinkedIn, so I've got Twitter ahead of me and uh, and also Facebook is in my future, I think, or in the future of our company. But at the moment LinkedIn, but hopefully soon on Twitter. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, again, Victor, thank you for coming on the podcast. I've enjoyed it, man. Again, thank you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.